Liberated relationships are one of the ways we actually create abundant justice. The understanding that there's enough attention, care, resource, and connection for all of us to access belonging, to be in our dignity, and to be safe in community. So we're recording this episode of Mistakes Were Made four days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Um, and it's much of what I've been thinking about and talking about this week. And it felt really important to spend today's episode talking about it and making some connections to the themes that we often discuss on this show. Um, you know, what does the overturn of Roe have to do with non-monogamy? I'm not totally sure, but I think those themes of autonomy and choice and radical choice in intimate spaces uh, are going to con- connect back to it. And I'm, I'm interested in exploring that today together in conversation. And that quote from Adrian Marie Brown from Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, felt like a way to get into it. Welcome to Mistakes Were Made, a podcast about non-monogamy for messy people like us. I'm Sarah, a queer therapist, writer, and journalist. And I'm her husband, Alex, a communication professional and educator. And we started this show because when we opened our marriage after almost 15 years, we were hungry for content that reflected how hard it was sometimes. So this show is part advice, part humor, part confession, part relentless critique of late stage capitalism, likely today a fair amount of emotional ranting as well. But it's all about learning from our mistakes and striving to be safer, freer, and more connected. Thanks for being here with me today, Sarah. Um, yeah. It's been uh, an interesting week, and it's um, I think I think there's a lot to talk about. Um, and you know, it's been like a little tricky to figure out exactly like how what's happening politically and personally uh, in the last few days um, is related. Uh, you know, what the connections are to our podcast topics. But you know, I really do feel like there is a lot there. But I thought maybe we should start with just like. Um, some thoughts about like what is our own, you know, usually on this podcast we talk about our own experience mm-hmm. with non-monogamy and I think that's really what it's about is how our experiences can translate to the experiences mm-hmm. of others. Um, so, you know, it's there's been a lot of like legalistic discussions about abortion and mm-hmm. reproductive justice and um, obviously it's also personal to a lot of people, but maybe we should start right in the middle of that. Like what is our own personal experience with abortion and access to, to um, abortion? Yeah. Well, I had an abortion at 19. Um, It was the right decision for me. I'm really grateful that I was able to have an abortion and what it turns out was a window of legality for it. Um, While I was thinking about how I had that option uh, at that point in my life, it also got me thinking about all of the other things in my life that have been illegal that are illegal, that may be illegal again, related to sex, sexuality, identity, uh, choice, uh, intimate relationships. And the list was pretty long. Abortion is now on that list, right? Uh, Gay sex is on that list. Extramarital sex is on that list. 
drugs are on that list, both recreationally and also because I've used psychedelics for um, therapeutic purposes. Sex work is on that list. It's a growing list. I, I was realizing... Um, contraception. Contraception is on that list. Uh, intimate, sexual, romantic relationships that are interracial is on that list. You're talking about things that have at different times been illegal. That I've engaged in. Yeah, that you've engaged in. Yeah. yeah. That is a long-ass list, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. I feel like there are a few others, maybe like politically motivated motivated vandalism. <laughs> <could be> on. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's some of that too. And you know what? In a way that probably is related to identity and sexual expression. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sarah has a great arrest story if anybody ever I, wants to hear it. We'll leave it for Yeah. Now. Feel free to just like slide into my DMs <laughs> and ask me some detailed questions about that. I'm here mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's where it most directly connects back to non-monogamy for me, right? Is like, here is yet another item on a list of items that are about like personal choices, relationship, my body, autonomy, sex, and sexuality that is illegal or um, sort of state-enforced or culturally taboo uh, in ways that are really oppressive and restrictive. Um, so that's the tie-in for me. What about you? What is your experience with abortion? How does that tie back to some of the things that we talk about on this show or your life. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking a lot about this and, you know, the way that, um, abortion is sometimes sort of couched as a, a women's issue, um, air quotes. Uh, and I, as I was thinking about that, like I came across an article that was talking about the implications for men. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, it's, I don't know if this is obvious or not, but it's huge for men, right? Like, yeah. Um, so the, the article that I found is that, uh, it's, you know, this study that I found said one in five men have been involved in a, an abortion. Um, this is a study from the journal contraception that was cited in an NPR article that we'll, uh, share in the show notes. And, um, that's obviously like an undercount, right? Uh, you know, because a lot of times men don't know, or of course, anytime there's a survey around stuff like this, people, you know, tend to underreport things that are, they perceive to be, uh, behavior that will be judged. Right. Um, and for me, uh, I mean the, the real answer is you don't know always. So I think the answer for me is I don't know that I have, uh, been, you know, involved in an abortion. Um, but, uh, I definitely have put myself at risk for that. Like I had unprotected sex, um, you know, as a, as a teenager starting at like 15 or 16, definitely like sometimes where it was like very, you know, I very much lucked out in not getting somebody, the person that I was, you know, sleeping with pregnant and took very little responsibility for that. Um, so, you know, who knows? Um, it's possible that, you know, if she had become pregnant, she would have had an abortion and not told me, Mm -hmm. um, or it's possible that that didn't happen, but only based on luck, not based on responsibility on my part. It's also interesting to think about how your life has been impacted and benefited from me having an abortion. Yeah, for sure. I'm like, 
over here ready to, to shout out your abortion. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've already shouted it, so yeah, no. feel free I to mean, reflect. I mean, more of a shout out, like, hey, Sarah's abortion. <laughs> um, because, yeah, we were involved at that time or soon after, and, you know, that that would have tied you to, you know, a relationship with somebody else for, for life that would have been disruptive in, in terms of ours. Um, and, I mean, is that what you were thinking of? I was thinking of that, um, but I also was thinking about one of the things that we're going to get into, I think, later in the show, which is the professional, personal, economic freedom and autonomy that I had as a result of not becoming a parent at 19, mm-hmm. right? And how our relationship has spanned a career in journalism, right? Um, and pr- all this professional development that has resulted in the ability for me to also make money, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and develop myself in those ways, things that I think would have been much harder for me to access if right. impossible had I become a parent at that age. And we got to choose to wait to have kids until we explicitly, deliberately wanted to and decided that we were going to rather mm-hmm. than kind of it happening to us, you know, more sort of passively. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, until we were like financially ready, we were positioned in these different ways. And that's like like kind of bringing us into one of the things that I, I think is worth talking about today, which is like this idea of, responsibility. And I think sometimes there's this sort of perception that people who are involved in abortions, people who get abortions Mm. or men who, you know, impregnate women who have abortions are irresponsible. Mm. And that's why it happens. And if everybody could be more responsible, um, then it wouldn't happen as much. And like, as I was looking into it and like reading that, that article that had some other studies in it as well, it seemed to me like it's actually quite the opposite, right? So in this study, uh, another study, they surveyed 200 male partners of women seeking procedures at abortion clinics. And they found that about half of the men already had children and supported termination of the pregnancy in order to better, better provide for their existing family. So it's not necessarily about, you know, getting away from the responsibility, but really like honoring the responsibilities that you do have. Yeah, it's complicated. I feel conflicted about that particular argument. And I've noticed in the like sort of big D Democrat um, discourse around this this week, there's been a lot of stories of like very responsible people who decided to have abortions for really good reasons. This kind of like respectability yeah, politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know? shared a thing from uh, one of our port commissioners who talked about how she had had three abortions for various different reasons. One, she wasn't ready to have a child. One, she had just had a child. I can't remember what the other right. one was. But it was definitely on that theme, yeah. And I feel really conflicted about that because I think that is often the case for people who get abortions and recognizing that it's not only women who get abortions, right? Um, and... Also, who gives a shit? Like, what if you just made all kinds of choices, bad, good, or otherwise, that other people may or may not understand and had abortions as a result? Who cares? Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that also gets into this morality autonomy stuff in really interesting ways. Uh, because, I mean, I think about this all the time with mine. Like, I made what you would probably call classically poor choices <laughs> with right. my sexual behavior. I got pregnant and it was a mistake and I went and got an abortion and you know what? It wasn't that big of a deal. It's like 24 hours, felt sick to my stomach, threw up in the like planter box outside, went home, watched some movies, had some feelings, integrated the experience into my life and moved the fuck on. Right? Yeah. Um, And so I also just like always feel compelled to want to like push that narrative out too, where it's like, 
it doesn't have to just be something that's available to people who are responsible or made the right choices. Mm-hmm. It should just be available to people because it's none of your fucking business. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, and and there's the questions of like responsibility in getting pregnant, quote unquote, accidentally. But also like we know that that is like really. I mean, if you've ever actually like been through the experience of trying to get pregnant or getting pregnant, you know, without meaning to, that's a total crapshoot too, right? Yeah. Like. It doesn't just work the way that you want it to. Right. And um, I mean, we can also easily, this is like the emotional ranting portion. <laughs> I, I told you all that this was going to happen. I knew this was going to happen. Um, you know, we can easily also talk about what shitty education I received around consent mm-hmm. and around mm-hmm. birth control and around how my own body worked, right? Like, it's just... Yeah. I, I mean, I think my temptation to be like, it's not about... Abortion isn't about irresponsibility, and and people. The reason people beat that drum so much is in part because then you just picture Clarence Thomas telling you what to do with your body, and I'm just like, you're fucking irresponsible too. Like, fuck you. This is not. That's not what this is about. This isn't like, you know, the, these are questions of of autonomy, right? right. And like, so to the right. idea that the state should have to tell you whether you can or can't do something with your right. body does kind of automatically imply that you're not re- responsible enough to make those decisions yourself. I'm not trying to be glib, but I also am realizing as we like connect back to the themes of the podcast, the title of this podcast is literally Mistakes Were Made, right? <laughs> and like this idea that to make mistakes and to learn from them, to grow, to be able to like have the choice, the freedom and autonomy to do all of that is very human. Yeah. That it's not about yeah. a life perfectly lived. It's about us living our lives the best way we can with the information that we have and having like freedom and autonomy and choice to learn yeah. and grow from that and not be punished for it for our entire lives. And I'm going to let you jump in in a second, but just <laughs> Jessica, uh, I'm our producer, but just real quick, like on that note, yeah, I might like appear to be one of the more responsible people that is out there, but like, yeah, I'm here to tell you like, you know, 16 year old me, Came inside my girlfriend without protection. And, like, that was a big mistake. But, like, people make those fucking mistakes. Right. And it's not actually a moral issue whether or not you make them. Right? Yes. Well, and, I mean, we have this tendency to be so shitty and moralistic about all kinds of health stuff. Right? And, like, if people smoke or drink or are fat, right, we... like we get judgy about those choices, but we would never say, oh, they don't deserve cancer treatments for right. lung cancer, right? right? You don't deserve treatments for any diseases that are caused by lifestyle choices. And I feel like, you know, okay, I don't know, talk shit about people's responsible or irresponsible behavior, but still give them the health care that they need. Well, people do say that, though. People do say that. I think that. they do. I think that's implied you, in the, I mean, they don't say it out loud, but it's implied they? in the meta. I mean, have you talked to... Yeah, they do. A doctor. <laughs> I know you've talked to a lot. Like, isn't I mean, there a lot of implication that, like, if you lived in this perfect way, and this is where, like, white supremacy, I think, comes mm. in and a lot of that stuff. Like, if you were this, you know, this perfect person who exercised and ate right and did all of these things that are not necessarily actually accessible to everybody because of economics and all sorts of other things, that you would be fine. And otherwise, mm. you know, that it is your fault when you need some e- kind of care. Yeah, I mean, I do think that they say it's your fault, but I don't think that they would say we should withhold treatment. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I right. think that's oh, the analogy yeah. with abortion is that, like, sure, we can say it's your fault that you got pregnant or you got somebody pregnant, but we shouldn't withhold this treatment to correct the situation. Right. <laughs> that's the comparison I'm trying to make in it, you know, and I, it's like I can handle people having shitty attitudes, don't love it, but 
than when you're affecting people's health. Uh huh. Right. And that's starting to get to how it's maybe punitive. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's not. I mean, yeah. medical racism and medical fat phobia, medical classism, all of those things do show up in mm. what kinds of treatments people get and yeah. for what kinds of um, medical issues. So we know that like this does show up. It's, it's interesting for it to be legislated in this way, right. for it to actually be law, right? But in that way, a lot of what people are talking about this week is this is not fucking surprising and it's not no. out of step with what this country is always doing. Mm-hmm. It is just one of the most recent like bold uh, articulations of what this, the state does and, and what this culture and country does to the people in it and why. When it, I mean, the other thing that it's making me think about too is sort of as personally a person who has many, many friends who have had abortions and who has never been pregnant. I've never been pregnant in my life, despite having tried (laughs) for a period of time and spent a lot of money on it. Like the flip side too, is the way that like fertility treatments are seen as not healthcare, right? They're seen as something that is accessible to rich people essentially, but not covered by health insurance. Not so. And again, it's sort of like women's reproductive and sexual health is just like, not considered health. It's considered something else, like yeah. something that we are screwing up or don't deserve, or I don't know what, I but think like Viagra is covered by health mm-hmm. insurance. I mean, I think what you're getting at is a segue into part of what we wanted to talk about next, which is women's reproductive health and bodies are seen as systems to control. Right. And for very specific reasons. And I, and I wanted to make sure that I said that I'm aware that I am not actually the demographic most specifically targeted by the Roe overturn, right? We know that poor working class BIPOC women, people, will be most impacted, and that's not a coincidence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's because these systems are about consolidating power and exerting control, right? And consolidating power into the hands of the people who have always had it in this country, right? White, wealthy, often men, right? And for other demographics of people to be controlled so that they can essentially stay less empowered, disempowered, um, and, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, I would argue a kind of like permanent underclass of people. Um, Mm -hmm. for that consolidation of power and and money ultimately. And people who aren't, I mean, I think it's, it's about that, but it's also about like, you know, who gets shown that they're free and who gets shown that they aren't Mm -hmm. and who can do exactly what they want with their body when they want to and who can't. And like those, yeah, those do think those things do cut along all of those lines that you were just describing race and class. And gender, and gender and sexuality. Yeah. And this is, I want you to take us on a little bit of a tour of this, Alex, because I know you've done some research about this over the past couple of days. Um, and I just, you know, just to state, I think, in the setup of this, how inconsistent the morality of all yeah. of that actually is, because it is about consolidating power. It's not actually about moral consistency of any kind. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I... I could have probably done more <laughs> research, but um, yeah, there are a lot of things that we have had 
uh, you know, a lot of a lot of ways that morality has changed over time in this country, and then the way that it changes from country to country. And if you think about all of the things that were like somewhat private things that have been, uh, you know, either considered immoral or and or illegal, you know, it's everything from, you know, all the people coming to this founding this country right they weren't allowed to practice their religions and so like that's kind of our narrative of you know the pilgrims or whatever mm. like trying to get away from religious oppression and um that you know but and then we like read about things in like silvio federici about like practicing witchcraft and like the salem witch trials and all of these different things where like you know that was like sometimes assertion of women's power um or knowledge or like scientific understanding that was like uh you know Suppressed, undermined, as, and ultimately made illegal. Made right? illegal and, and couched punished as like, by death. And talked about in a moral sense that they're doing right. like the devil's work. But in fact, we know when we look back into history, that was all about like economic consolidation of, of power and, um, you know, subjugation. Right. And then like more recently, you know, marriage between people of different races was for a long time illegal in this country. I was looking this up, not just marriage, but also sexual relationships of any kind mm-hmm. were illegal in many states. Yeah, and then also de facto illegal um, or, you know, uh, not not going to be permitted. Um, homosexual acts, uh, you know, were, were illegal prior to also, you know, and then there was a period where they were mostly legal, but gay marriage was not legal. And now, of course, it is in, in the country as a whole. Um, for now. For now. Contraception. Um, you know, so there are like any number of things that we might sort of now understand as this is uh, normal, moral, legal behavior that it hasn't really been the case for really that long. And Roe Ro v. Wade goes back to 1973, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these uh, other things were, you know, a few years before, or a few years after that. So in some ways, it's like shedding light on how our morality and the legal reflections of that change a lot and also how kind of jarring it is to take this step backwards. I think that sometimes we have this like nice liberal narrative of that, like we're on, you know, the arc of history bends mm-hmm. to as long, but bends towards justice or we're, you know, moving in a more progressive way. And, and this is certainly evidence to the contrary, evidence to the contrary which yeah. is why so much of the democratic response has been so just maddening. I mm-hmm. feel like in the past week, where they're like, this isn't our country, you know, we won't go backwards. Uh-huh. This is, we must like, whatever the poem was that Nancy Pelosi read that I could only get through a few seconds of before I threw my phone across the room. But, you know, this idea where we, we must whisper in our country's ear so that she wakes up again to her true nature. And it's like, this is her true nature. Yeah. Uh-huh. This is the true nature yes. of this country. Yes. And it is consistently the true nature. And we don't actually have much evidence of a... a, a a consistent trajectory towards more inclusive freedoms and autonomy for more and more people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth it to go on a little bit of a like legal nerd tour just because (laughs) the change in Roe v. Wade I count on you for that. (laughs) It does like open up like, so that, so the original like argument, uh, protecting the right to abortion, abortion was based on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and like constitutional right to privacy stuff. So that like the laws are going to be enforced in a way that is fair, um, you know, and, and is not um, people are equally protected under the law and that 
we have a right to privacy and the things that we do basically like in a, inside of our homes or families, however right. that definition of that changes. And you can over see time. how this connects back to non-monogamy, right? It, yes, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. And all of those things that many of those things we just talked about, contraception, uh, you know, homosexuality, gay marriage, interracial marriage, all of those things were argued and made legal by the Supreme Court based on that same argument of privacy and equal protection under the laws. So in overturning Roe v. Wade on those grounds, even though most of the justices were just like, well, no, that's not what we're doing. It's a state's rights issue or some like bullshit. Yeah, but they were saying that we're not overturning Roe v. Wade for the past 15 years yeah. too in the lead up to it. Yeah. So, yeah. Point is, they're fucking lying and they've done, that's right. they've laid the groundwork to take away all of those other rights and like really just decide that they can come into our homes and our private lives and tell us what we can and can't do right. in ways that we thought we were way beyond. And, and I do think that's... And maybe some, it, that speaks to like some demographics of folks thought we were way beyond. And I take some responsibility yes. for my own demographic yeah. there. Fair um, yeah. 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 Um. Jess. <laughs> Jess. <laughs> well, join no, us. <laughs> I just have a question about this legal nerdery. Um, <laughs> does it mean that there's like any hope that we can get abortion rights back for some other reason? I mean, is that a theory that we're hearing I mean, anywhere? So the thing is that, I mean, that the other, the other sort of problem with the ruling is that it was ruled based on those grounds in 1973. All of the judges that voted to overturn it lied, pretty much lied through their teeth when they were being confirmed and said, I believe in, uh, what's it called, it the, um, the precedent. Mm -hmm. right. And that precedent is sound. And then they just kind of like, I don't think they, I mean, I haven't like read the whole argument, but I don't think they came up with anything really new. No. They were just kind of like, ha ha. Psych. Psych. Gotcha. So what that means is that yes, another court could overturn it very easily, but it also means that the court's legitimacy is just like gone, gone. Like, Everybody knows now that it's political, and like we kind of knew that, but like right. if some justices are going to come in and say we disagree, not really on very any any sort of meaningful, sound legal basis, that what they said before is incorrect, and you know half of us just got confirmed by a president that most people don't think is legitimate, or you know all of the bullshit that's been going on with Supreme Court confirmations. It's just it is very clearly political. So yeah, in theory. Some of them die, and then, you know, more liberal justices get confirmed. Maybe it goes back the other way, but yikes. The, I mean, it's. I mean, I've, I've been saying it for a long time, and I'm going to say it right now. Basing everything on the Constitution, it doesn't work very well, right? Mm -hmm. Because slavery was constitutional. That's right. For a while. Women not being able to vote was constitutional. I mean, we're proving, we're proving, we're exploring in this episode all of the ways that our country's founding and its founding documents and its institutions have actually upheld some of the most abhorrent yeah. human rights abuses you can possibly imagine. Right. So if you don't think that, that there's a divine or like supreme document like the constitution that can guide you and the supreme court kind of just shit on that and fucked that all up for anybody who still believed it and if you don't think that god is telling you what to do which right. i'm sure a lot of people think and a lot of going back to our conversation a minute ago like i'm sure a lot of people would like with a straight face tell you well the reason that 
you got pregnant when you didn't want to and you didn't get pregnant when you did want to was because God decided that. Right. And so right. he was right. He was yeah. was correct Pointed. in making yes. that decision. Oh, yeah. Someone literally said that to me, actually, because then later my husband had a disabling stroke and someone told me, oh, well, that's why God didn't have you get pregnant before. How it was a way to comfort him. me. Yeah. yeah. I was like, thanks. Yeah. That's, that wow. makes me feel a lot better. So, nice guy. Nice guy. <laughs> So if you don't believe either of those two things, the Constitution or God, then what do you believe in? Where do you get all this stuff? And I think that's what leads us to... Where do your morals come from? Where do your values come from? How do you live and how do you know how to live in a way that's consistent with those beliefs? Yeah. And that's where you end up being weird, Hmm. pseudo-anarchist, non-monogamous people who are trying to make their own rules all the time. I'm not a (laughs) (laughs) pseudo-anarchist. You're not a relationship anarchist, though. But that, that's well, that's episode. actually for another episode. Yeah. And, yeah, so, to yeah. be explored. <laughs> I want to just take one more second on this, like, moral relativism, um, because I, I did a little bit more research, and um, I want to say that the Pew Research uh, Organization should be, like, like it's, like, moral relativism brought, brought to you by Pew Research, because <laughs> they're always doing these, like, cross-cultural surveys and over-time surveys and saying, like, what do people think in this country versus in this country about, you know, any different number of issues, you know, really pointing out how different our perceptions about those things. And usually that's, like, sort of couched in a partisan way that, like, here's how far apart Democrats and Republicans are, and here's what people think about this issue. And you, I'm sure you've heard that around abortion in the last, you know, months or weeks or days or years, um, you know, and it's to some extent, it's how you ask the question. But I looked up like I was curious what the different moral laws were. And we can share this in the show notes, too. Um, so like, for for instance, uh, you know, contraceptives, something that like in the United States, 7% of people report thinking that use of contraceptives is morally unacceptable. And, you know, 65% of people in Pakistan think that and uh, you know, 33% of people in Kenya think that. Obviously, it varies very much from country to country and culture to culture. And, you know, the laws sometimes reflect that and sometimes they don't. Um, and we might like to think like, oh, our, our laws are going to, you know, if everybody, if more of us agree on something, then it will remain legal. But clearly that is not always the case. Either. Mm-hmm. So anyway, point being, uh, I thought it was interesting to look at like the things that they did surveys on. Um in terms of global morality, uh, and across 40 different countries, um, you know, 14% is the average of people who think contraception is unacceptable, 24% for divorce, 46% for premarital sex. So you're starting to get mm-hmm. into some of the things that we pretty much think as a culture is, is okay. Right. Um, but a lot of other people in other countries don't, uh, 56%, um, this is globally, think abortion is unacceptable. So that's kind of interesting. Um, Homosexuality, gambling, and then the number one Mm. thing that people across the world think is morally unacceptable. Any guesses? I have one. (laughs) Yes? Uh... I'm, I'm guessing, of course, that it's infidelity of some kind, right? Yeah, so, so it's listed here as extramarital affairs, which, right. uh, you know, you can, you can sort of try to parse out whether that's um, uh, consensual or not. Um, but 
that is something that 84% of Americans say is unacceptable. Um, 4% say is acceptable. 10% say is not a moral issue. And then, um, you know, slightly, slightly lower numbers for globally, right? I, I assume that there are a lot of French people that are skewing that. With their <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Uh, this, it's is not how, a slander. this is how we're going to get on the charts in France, hey, right? You know what? I love I love the French people's <laughs> attitude towards this, um, <laughs> or what you've learned of it through yes, soapy through. <laughs> American television and movies. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, anyway, yeah. Go ahead. I, so that I mean that leads into this like big piece of I think what we want to talk about today, which is all right. So if you're non-monogamous, and also if you find yourself on that longer list of illegal or morally questionable things to be or have done that I'm on. Uh, how do you relate to your own values? Where do they come from? What does it feel like to be or engage in behavior that people find morally repugnant, that the state finds morally disgusting, that um, might even be legislated against, right? At least in the case of sexuality, abortion, contraception. Sounds like a good thing to talk about after the break. Yeah, we'll be back. <laughs> okay, so coming back from the break, I want to ask you guys a question. Um, this is on my mind because I'm getting ready to visit my very conservative in-laws in the Midwest. Mm. And I'm thinking about, at least in my mind, their image of me is as a queer commie slut, mm-hmm. let's say, That's from right. the West Coast. <laughs> I would as an A-cab queer commie A-cab. slut. <laughs> yeah, A-cab. Mm-hmm. Take it as a compliment. Coastal elite. I mean, like all... like They're not wrong. Yeah, no. I mean, I identify as all of those things. Um, but I think like the stereotype of that in my mind, their stereotype of that is also a person with like no morals, no values, just like a total sort of derelict, horrible person. You know, I hear all of those things and I'm like, oh, great. Queers, communists, sluts, love them all. Um, but anyway, so like <laughs> that perception of yourself, like how does that feel? Where do your values come from? Like what, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's such a good question is that if we sort of recognize that liberation, autonomy, care, all of those like dignity, connection from Adrian Marie Brown's quote, those don't happen through appealing to the state, right? Mm -hmm. The state's not going to provide those for us through some sort of like consistent legislation of morality. They are not um, a reliable narrator of morality, which I think we're identifying here. So that means that only we can do that, right? Only we can really decide what our values are, what our morals are, not just for ourselves, but also in community with each other. Um, And that that's like, that's where liberation will come from. That's where care comes from. That's where dignity and connection comes from. Uh, But that's pretty intense to be engaging with that and try and be like responsible and accountable to that all the time in the face of the world we live in. Right. What do you think, Alex? Yeah. I mean, I think that what we were, that sort of comes back to what we were talking about earlier about um, the fact that these things are always changing, um, you know, uh, really like, like the one thing that this country 
and our sort of values get right is let people be free, right? Whether or not we get actually get it right in practice, like that idea. That rhetoric is that rhetoric is like pervasive. there's something to it because where I'm going with this is that like the the majority, like tyranny of the majority is like a thing. And in this case, we have like tyranny of the minority is what's happening right now, it seems like. But like um, people being free to define their own lifestyles and their own values um, and behave the way that they want if it doesn't And harm live others. authentically to who they are, right? Yeah. yeah. And that is like a great, that's a great thing that, you know, we do talk about in rhetoric. And especially when you look at what we were talking about in the top half of the podcast, how much the morals and things like that are changing, right? They're not fixed. There is no truth there. It's just what works right for people. And so let people do what works right from them for them if it doesn't hurt other people. And I, and I guess that's where, um, you know, that's kind of like what queerness means too, right? Like that self-defining of your, like, you're going to be different and you want to, you know, be yourself. That's and what. live safely and authentically. I mean, the problem I have, of course, as soon as we start talking about like that rhetoric of freedom is that, but certain groups have never had that. Right. Like it's just so it's so hollow so fast. And I mean, we're also like living at a time where we can't teach about queerness or gayness in schools in many parts of the country and where trans kids can't get the health care they need. Um, So it just feels like even that rhetoric has only ever existed in service of certain groups of people and kind of shifting groups of people according to the direction of power. Yeah. Hard agree. Yeah. But uh, I would rather the rhetoric make sense and not be followed through on than the rhetoric just be shitty. And that's <laughs> and also not how be low the bar on. is nowadays yeah. in that's America. How, that's how low the bar is. <laughs> anyway, the point is that, like, yeah, this is it. I do think that, like, also some of the things that you're just talking about, like, those are reactions to the fact that people are getting more free, acting more free, defining right. their own morality right. more. And uh, that makes some people uncomfortable because they're losing power when that happens. Really right? good point. And I, you know, we've talked about this. Uh, we see evidence this in growing numbers of folks who are non-monogamous, openly identifying as queer, living in different ways. We've talked about this a lot on the show. I mean, do you see that as kind of an example of people, whether they like explicitly know it or not, recognizing that the state is not going to liberate them, but it's only through connecting to their own values and morals. Like the state won't do it. Religion won't do it. The culture at large won't do it. It's only through this kind of self-exploration and and collective. I mean, definitely worth noting that many non-monogamous people, including like somebody I had a conversation with just the other day, uh, are people who came out of, uh, you know, what they might describe as cults or intensely religious communities, right? right? There are a lot of people who grew up in those very rigid moral frameworks. And then as soon as they stepped outside of them, they were like, oh, I don't have to do any of those things. And, you know, I can define this for myself. I can define this for myself. And where they landed was, you know, having multiple romantic relationships or like exploring sex with, uh, you know, more people than their partner who they probably a lot of times who they met in the inside of that framework and like really loved and cared for but also you know saw ways that that wasn't going to be everything for them once they were sort of free of those oppressive structures so i don't know if that's like how important that is but it does seem like 
there's a there's a big parallel there. Yeah. Yeah. So And then we, there's people like us who have kind of been mostly left to do what we wanted for for most of our lives and or like I guess I should speak for myself, mm-hmm. right? I feel like my experience has been a little bit different of mm-hmm. like that those things be more being more kind of self-imposed and like nobody really telling me what to do exactly and you know, this being where I landed. You're still a product of this culture. Um, sure. Even, even if you haven't had those like explicit uh, oppressive experiences, um, and I think like that has shown up just this week in you making the decision to be a little more public, like at work, about being non-monogamous and what it's felt like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I'm not taking full responsibility for having made that decision super actively, but you that keep, is happening. You keep saying that. That is happening you, more. You describe it as like my thumb slipped and somehow <laughs> I shared this Instagram story that outed me as non-monogamous. Yeah, that's what happened, yeah. <laughs> you never know what people are going to see. I don't think anybody see it, but um, yeah. The feeling of that is, uh, yeah, it's, it does, um, it is hard. Uh, it, it also, I mean, it's funny because it's like hard and also makes me feel sort of like silly or like a little bit weak because I know that it's just putting me like more in touch with what other people who don't have that choice as much are experiencing. Right. right? Some people don't get to opt into, um, you know, the, the mainstream, um, you know, just by the decision not to out themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's kind of gets back to Jessica's question of like, what does it feel like to define your own morality? What does it feel like to, uh, do that as choice? What does it feel like to not sometimes have the choice? Um, so what did it feel like? Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, hmm. like a little bit, I guess a, a little bit scary and a little bit good. It feels good to hear, like to see that reflected back to you based on other people um, relating to it for sure. Like, um, you know, I got like some messages from people who are like, you know, oh, this is great. And here, this is how this is like me or here's like things that I'm wondering about related to it. Um, yeah. Um, and that, like, it feels good to be more seen kind of, but also, uh, I'm like not being seen. <laughs> so, I mean, that's like the, the inherent tension in my personality. It's like that Goo Goo Dolls song. I'm sorry, which Goo Goo Dolls song is that? Uh, maybe Please. we can play the clip because I don't think I should sing it. Let's Are just you put sure? the clip. You could hum a few bars I mean, just so goes, I know what we're I talking about. I don't want the world to see me because I don't think that they'd understand. Ah, that something, one. something, something. <laughs> I just want you to know who I am. Got it. Not sure what the third line is, but we'll I saw out. actually our friend uh, made a, when the, the Drake meme of him like looking like really sad and hiding and then like on the bottom he looks really happy. Our friend <laughs> made his own meme that was... I don't want the world to see me. I just want you to know who I am. <laughs> that's probably why that's in my head. Anyway, you know. You're going like, to get that tattoo? Yeah. Ooh, a, t- a tattoo of an entire color Drake meme from 2013 is a great idea. I think yeah. it's perfect. Okay. Hit me up, anybody who wants to do that tattoo on me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's the tension. Um, you know, wanting to be to be free and to be seen and also, you know, being afraid of that. And having to live with the consequences of it yeah. in a culture where 
that can be seen as like really dangerous and immoral. Yeah. So like fucking mapping that back to abortion, imagine, you know, in the previous situation, deciding that you want to get an abortion and having some people waiting outside telling you how horrible of a person you are. You know, that's like not an active I can't imagine that. I experienced that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or the state telling you that you can't do that. Also experienced that. At all. Yeah. You experienced the state telling you you couldn't get an abortion. As of this week. Right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so what, I guess what we're getting at is it's hard, right? That as we, these systems more fully expose themselves for being hypocritical, oppressive, and failing, more and more people are asking themselves and each other, what are our values? How do we hold ourselves and support each other in exploring them and trying to live by them? Uh, but it's really difficult. And I think, you know, uh, it's super frightening. And yeah. And I was wondering, like, how does that show up with your clients? Like, if you're, you're talking to a lot of, you know, non-monogamous people, newly non-monogamous people, queer people, trans people, like, all, all sorts of other people who are having probably similar experiences of having to, like, sort of asserting, assertively define their identities and their values. Um, what is that like in kind of, like, the therapeutic context? Like, is it easy? Is it liberating? How do those people answer the question that you asked you just asked me. It's hard as fuck. Yeah. Um, you know, that like they often I think people feel constantly under attack. They, oh, many, many people don't feel like they have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there Which are. I guess is what I was getting at. Yeah. There are folks, especially with non monogamy, I definitely have a number of clients who would fall into that description of having been raised in really intense, total ideology, religious environments and deciding to become non-monogamous uh, once they get out of them, mm-hmm. in sometimes because of sexual liberation and sometimes because they're queer, and yeah. it's uh, also how they can express and explore that. Um, so I think a lot of people that I talk to just talk about how it doesn't, it doesn't feel very fun right now. It feels pretty scary, um, and it often feels like losing your family or you know, important parts of your community or history um, that uh, I know for a lot of people, there's this very real fear, too, of, like, physical harm. A couple of people that I talked to last week were just, like, really had ruminated, ruminating thoughts around, like, getting pregnant and not being able to get an abortion and, like, understanding. They were like, I understand that's not going to happen to me. But it's like, I can't stop Mm -hmm. thinking about that happening to me. It's like an obsessive thought that I'm now struggling with. Um, What about on the more like kind of like moral, like autonomy, personal responsibility level? Like, yeah. So kind of like higher level, I identify among other things as an existential therapist or, Mm -hmm. um, and so that just means like there is no inherent meaning in existence but we build it. And like that, in a way, that is what human beings do. We're like meaning making machines. We connect to meaning and purpose and that's how we like live our lives, right? And often experiences of depression, crisis and grief um, can be a crisis of meaning where it's like a system of meaning or belief or identity has been challenged or has crumbled in some way and there's just this feeling of being totally disconnected and unsure of who you are and what the meaning is in your life. So the 
your your meaning is that there is no meaning. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all made up. Uh, liberating, but also terrifying. It's liberating and it's terrifying, right? And I don't want to give anybody out there listening the impression that I think that this is just great fun. I also deeply <laughs> struggle with it on a daily basis. I kind of, if I, there are many days where if I could push a button and not think that way, I would push that button yeah. and just be like, someone give me like a total ideology that I can just live by and not question. Yeah, Thanks. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I think therapeutically, that is like, that's happening on the individual level. It's happening on the collective level. It's happening on a mass scale. These crises of meaning and of purpose uh, and of values and asking ourselves like, well, what are they really for us? And, and what does... How do we express them? How do we live by them? Um, and especially in the face of so many systems maybe we once believed in failing mm -hmm. or even attacking us. Yeah, right. And then you lose faith in those systems and they lose legitimacy. And yeah. then you are, you know, it's like almost like a cycle where exactly. then you're like trying to make more of your meaning, your own meaning. And that's hard. Yeah. And also you're more free to realize that you don't need those systems. That's and right. thus they are further undermined. Right. Yeah. But I, I appreciate that kind of like, I have a friend who talks about spiraling up, right? Mm -hmm. And I kind of appreciate that circular nature of it, that it's not like a linear progression, like towards liberation, but this is like, these things live in complex relationship to each other. Uh, right. The failings of these systems and the incredible liberatory opportunities in that, but also the very real fear and the very real challenges of it too. Yeah. I mean, if you flush a toilet in Australia and it, look at it from here. It is spiraling up. It's spiraling up. Exactly. Perfect. <laughs> Every spiral Perfect is going metaphor. both up and down. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think like as we're kind of closing in on this exploration of how these ideas connect, how they do for us individually and, um, and why we're talking about these things in the wake of the row overturn. Uh, a question that's just coming up for me is how do we support ourselves and each other through this process of exploring our own values outside of, you know, the sort of problematic culture and systems uh, and laws? Yeah. And I mean, I think that that does point to like a thing between men and women also. Um, and it, I mean, it's so interesting, like how this is a political issue and then it's kind of couched as like a women's issue, but then, you know, like obviously women and men are both very divided right. on, on the issue. Um, and I think that for men who, you know, are supportive of reproductive justice, in theory, it's like hard. It's a little bit hard to like know how to show up mm. um, in a moment like this. And I've like kind of heard you and other women reflecting on that, like where are the men at, right? Or the flip side, like sort of praising men who are showing up in mm. ways. I'm curious, like how you feel about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, just sort of stepping back for a moment. I think there's a couple of things happening. One, I think any sort of attack on autonomy bodily autonomy and people's personal like choices and freedom is something that everybody should be very concerned about. Mm -hmm. Um, and it does in fact impact all of us. Um, and 
I think it's interesting that it often is couched in those very like binary terms of it being a women's issue. I think, you know, again, we're saying it's not just women who get pregnant. It's not just women who are impacted by abortion. It's also like a queer issue in many ways. It's also an issue, um, a racial justice issue because of people who are most impacted by it. It's a class issue because of people who are most impacted by it. So it really is an everyone issue. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I like kind of crave seeing is everybody showing up as it's as in recognition of it being an everyone issue. And within that, to your point, there is a tension and we've experienced it together and also in other relationships between men and women, right? Um, around, I guess, like cis men and women around responsibility and impact related to abortion. Yeah, and like where is the, the source of it? I think my, my feeling, confused feeling has been in feeling that that like, um, you know, r rollback of reproductive rights is driven by misogyny in a sort of inherent way. And it's like not a coincidence that four of the five justices that voted for it were men. Right. And, you know, that it is, it is symbolic of patriarchy and stuff like that. But going back to what I was saying up top, like it's really a men's issue too, right? Men are involved in pregnancies. most of the pregnancies or right. all pregnancies, depending on how you're defining it. Um, and you know, there, there's autonomy at play there, but I think it, it, it like, I end up landing in this place of both feeling like victimized by it and also like a perpetrator of it mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. And kind of like responsibility for it happening and also like grieving that it did happen and, and sometimes being angry. Yeah. yeah. I think that that is like such a great point of tension and a good example of something that we are not taught to hold very well mm -hmm. is those kinds of like complexities of feelings. Um, and I, this shows up therapeutically a lot too in my practice is there are very few feelings out there that are just purely one feeling, right? Mm -hmm. It's most feelings are a mixture of feelings. Right. Uh, and especially in these times, you know, they're a mixture of anger and sadness and grief and loss and guilt and shame, right? And that like being able to name that is I think really important. Um, and I think it's also about how we hold the collective and the individual at the same time. What I hear you saying when you say I feel personally impacted and I'm grieving that, and I also feel personally implicated in this horrible thing that's happened, um, I hear you giving voice to this idea that we are both things at once. Mm -hmm. We are individuals impacted by these things uh, that attack our values, that aren't in align with our values, uh, in alignment with our values. And we're also part of a collective where in some cases to varying degrees, we've benefited from the systems like patriarchy or racism. Um, and we are trying to learn how to hold those things all at once. Even though we like don't come from a culture that encourages us to do that because we come from a culture that thinks in like terms of good and bad, uh, like victims yeah. and perpetrators of villains and good guys. Yeah, and I am, like, tempted to, like, kind of assertively restate what what I think we've said a, a few times, but, like, with all of this, like, you know, this, this discussion of kind of, like, moral ambiguity and who decides what is right and what is wrong, like, 
there are some things that I feel certain about. Mm-hmm. And like people being able to do what they want with their bodies when it especially when it doesn't harm another person. You know, that that is like a clear-cut moral right, right? Yes, and absolutely. like any time that that's called into question and we like as human beings have a real problem <laughs> with this, I think, but that is something that I think you can come back to as a touchstone like you should be able to express yourself and be yourself and do what you want to do and feel safe and feel safe and free mm-hmm. and free. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so I think when it comes to how we are holding each other, you and I have kind of gone back and forth on this where at moments I just wanted to like rage about the way this felt and I just wanted you to be present for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and at times I wanted you to like check in with me about how I was feeling and recognizing that it's something that I might be experiencing differently from than you. And at times I wanted us both to just be like super mad together. And at times I wanted us to be in problem solving mode. And at times I wanted us to just be in like yelling and crying mode. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And the feeling of being oppressed either in a direct way or in a more indirect way uh, is a fucking hard feeling. Yeah. And I think like a lot of people are having that feeling right now and you know a silver lining maybe is understanding the other ways that people are feeling that for other reasons all the time yeah for me at least but um and learning how we can take responsibility for the parts of harm that we may have participated in that we all have because everyone has also been harmed and that's the flip side of the freedom is the accountability and the responsibility um for caring for others. Yeah. And if we can do that part, that's what I mean by not harming other people, I guess. If we can do that part, then we should also be able to be free. And we can, we can do, I think we can do both things. We have to. Yeah. I think we absolutely have to. Uh, and I think that gets me into an Adrian Marie Brown quote that I picked out for the end of this episode. Adrian Marie Brown sandwich this episode. Well, it is, and for good reason. I think she's doing such a good job of really being able to speak to grief and joy at the same time, um, the complexity of feelings, the holding of ourselves and each other, uh, all the intersectionality and nuance that this moment requires. And she's one of my go-tos when things get real fucking hairy. Um, so Yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Um, This palpable, active, ongoing grief is a non-negotiable part of this period of immense change. Grief is one of the most beautiful and difficult ways we love. As we grieve, we feel our humanity and connection to each other, building the path from this heartbreaking present to a future where we center our collective existence in love and care is where we come in. And I think in that way, um, she really speaks to how we build how we build meaning. I think a quote like that helps me build meaning out of the pain of this moment and understand some of the like beautiful opportunity in it at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for talking to me about it today. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you, everyone, for being with us today on Mistakes Were Made. Um, 
definitely, uh, if you're liking the podcast, um, check it out on Instagram at MistakesCast. Um, we're going to start doing more, a little bit more content on the Instagram and also like crowdsourcing some questions and doing things like that. So definitely follow us there and of course, um, help spread the word and rate it on your different podcast platforms and like it and stuff like that. And, uh, we will be back soon with more in two weeks. Um, and yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks everybody. It was good being with you. Bye. Bye.